morning we look again at the prologue of the Gospel of John, poetic and powerful as it is. This is our, our second look at it, so if you'll open your Bibles to John chapter 1. This is our, again, our second week in our study of this Gospel, which we'll be doing for a while now. Uh, well, until we get to the end of it, which will be a while. Because we are looking at the prologue, though we'll be looking at a theme that runs through it, uh, we'll be reading the entirety of, uh, of it. So our reading will begin this morning in verse 1, continuing through verse 18. Hear the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. And from this fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. Let's go to our God in prayer that we may benefit from this word. Father, we come now and commit ourselves to this time as an expression of our worship to listen for your voice through the word that was read and that we now consider. I pray that as I speak that I would be able to be used by you to reveal and to uh, be faithful to this text, that which you would have us to see. I pray for those who hear, that you would give them ears and minds and hearts that are open and even hungry for you. For it is in this that your promises are found to be true. Your word never comes back empty. It is powerful for the bringing of change, not only informing us in our mind, but forming us to become like Christ. Lord, this is our need. This is our desire, and this is your promise. And we pray that you would be at work doing that even now as we consider this word before us. We pray all things in the name of Christ and for his sake, for he is the word that is incarnated, the revelation, and our reconciler to the living and true God. Amen. Helen Keller recalled the moment when Ann Sullivan first broke through her dark, silent world. Listen to what she records. 
We walked down the path to the well house, attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. Someone was drawing water, and my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word W-A-T-E-R. First slowly, then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motion of her fingers. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness as if something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant that wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, and set it free. The moment that Keller is describing is that very instant that her world of darkness was shattered by the light of language. And it not only opened up an entire new world for her, giving her more possibility, but as she describes, even in her own emotions, her soul was awakened by that light, giving her hope and freedom and joy things that we all, all people, are desperately longing for. The sad reality is that there are many people who are as much in their own darkness as Helen Keller was in the morning of that day before she had been enlightened uh, by that language. She was able to see. She was able to understand. And people living in their own darkness are in need of illumination. And it's because that is such a reality that it's vitally important and even intriguing that John here declares to us that the light which enlightens everyone has come into the world. And that's the very reason that he is writing to us as part of this prologue. This is the second of the great themes that permeate the entirety of the book of John, and it's part of what John talks about here in these opening verses in in this poetic language. We looked last week at the first of those great themes, which is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us for a while. And as we, we looked at that, we were reminded that the choice of the word Word or Logos was important because it is much fuller than we might otherwise consider. It's a clear testimony that Jesus Christ, who is the one who is the Word, is God. He is not only the one that describes God. We are able to see what God is like as we look at him. He's the description of God. In that sense, he is word. But even as John uses that word logos as part of a challenge or as part of building upon philosophy, he is reminding us that he's not merely a description, but he is God. He is the very essence of what he describes, and he has come and dwelt among us. So God come in the flesh is one of the themes that permeates this entire letter. It's a foundation that we need to understand. But the second theme that we see in this opening that permeates everything is that of light that John is talking about here in this passage as well that we are, are looking at. John saying the light has come into the world. We're going to be looking at that this morning. And I'm going to use verse 5 somewhat as our outline. Verse 5 tells us this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So using that somewhat as our outline, 
The first thing we need to understand is this. John is telling us Jesus is the light of men. We see that clearly as we look at the way that John puts everything together. Look in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In whom? Well, who was the, the word that had become incarnated? We've already established, and John makes clear, he's talking about Jesus. So Jesus is not only the word, but he is also the light that has come into the word. And we see the whole theme of light intermingling with the theme of the word through these opening verses of, of this gospel. So it's quite clear that John is talking about Jesus as being the one who is the light. But someone might ask, well, what does he mean by light, though? I mean, it's been, said that for, it's been said that for the scientists, light equals energy. For the philosopher, light equals wisdom. For the religious seeker, light equals purity and perfection. And all of those are, are certainly true. And so it's reasonable that we would ask, what, is it, what, do you think, what does John have in mind here when he's saying Jesus is the light? And that would suggest to you that John in his beautiful way of writing, has all of those, and perhaps even more, in mind. He's wanting to call our attention to the majesty and the complexity of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who's not just compartmentalized, put in a box within a few things that we are to know. And we see that John has all of them in mind, even when we explore the text that's before us. Because if you look at verse 3, we read this. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. He's talking about the creation. He's talking about, really, it's a divine energy that created all things. See, speaking the language of the scientist, he's saying that this light is the energy through whom everything was made. At the same time, if you back up to verse 1, you see, again, the, the word. Speaking to the philosopher, all that's encapsulated in the logos and the word is the wisdom of God that has come to us in the flesh. And then again in verse 14, we see the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so there is an experiential description here for people that are seeking something that is transcendent, something that is perfect, something that is pure. And in this picture, John is saying, we have seen it, we have experienced it, we have seen perfection, full of grace and truth, we have beheld the glory. And the picture here is of the, the holiness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so John, in a beautiful economy of words, is talking about the majesty and the completeness of Christ that tells us that he is more expansive and exhaustive than we can possibly ever imagine. Even in these categories alone, people spend their lives in one of them, never exhausting all there is to know. And John's saying in just these few words, he is the light and all of this is encapsulated. And I think that we would be unwise to assume that this is all he is. But even if this is all he was revealed to us, it's more than we can learn and understand in a lifetime. And so John is very clear that the majesty of God coming in the person of Christ, Jesus is the light that has come into this world. But we also need to see this because there's a context to it. And we're told that the true light shines in the darkness. Now the darkness that John is speaking of here, what he means is, is this world. And we, we get that again as we look in verse 9. 
the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And so we see a parallel between our outline verse, the light shines in the darkness, it's come into the darkness, and then the light had come into this world. John's talking about this world. And some people have difficulty with that concept. What we need to understand is John is trying to paint the picture of the condition of humanity that was alienated from God, which is common for all of us. But when he's talking about darkness, he's simply, darkness is described as an absence of light. And so those who are apart from God were lacking that light which illumines everything. He's not suggesting that everything in this world is ugly or bad. There's a lot of beauty, and John refers to that. Even we see it in a lot of his writing. There's a lot that is good, that there's a lot that is beautiful, but nevertheless, the condition of the world is described as darkness. It's the absence of that light. But even in the absence of light, all of us can grow somewhat discomforted or even creeped out. I remember reading an interview with Stephen King, who I, I don't know if he's the prince of darkness, but close. And someone, the interviewer asked him, do you ever write at night? And he said, are you kidding with the stuff that I write? And so even Stephen King, who's poured his life into exposing darkness and showing what also comes along with darkness, he's a little uncomfortable with that. And all of us can experience that. We may be comfortable in darkness in places where we are familiar, but go someplace that you're not familiar, which means it's darkness in both senses, both the absence of light in the nighttime, you're unfamiliar with what lies down a particular road, or, and, and we're all somewhat unnerved. We become much more cautious. We can easily be creeped out when there is an absence of light. And John is saying that that's the condition of the world that is apart from God is it's dark, it's scary, and can even be dangerous. But John says that it's into that darkness that the true light came in order to shine, to radiate, to, to bring light. And it's the word true that seems intriguing to me. Because it's one thing to say there's a light, but now he's saying the true light. Why is John focusing on true? In one sense, as we look at the text here, John is making a comparison and contrast just in, in the flow of things, because it, it flows right after his introduction to John the Baptist. We won't look at John the Baptist this morning in great detail. Camper will introduce us to that John in, in a couple of weeks. But John the Baptist was called to be a person who would declare the light. The light was to radiate from him. He was one who was a witness. And John's very adamant here. He himself was not the light. And the reason John is making that statement is because John the Baptist had come into the world. His message was so profound, so powerful, so impacting the people that he had gathered masses of followers. And he had brought people to both repentance and a nearness to God, declaring to them of their own brokenness, of the darkness of their world. They recognized the reality of what John described. They repented of their sin. They experienced the baptism of repentance, is what John was called to, uh, to bring. And then they would follow John, seeking the wisdom that God had given to him to bring enlightenment. And so people were passionate about following John. He had helped them in very practical and, and in spiritual ways. 
And because they were followers, it was very easy for people to assume this is the life that God was promising. And John, who was among the first followers of John the Baptist, is saying, you know, John, John might have been a light, but he's not the true light. He's not the real light. He's just giving testimony to the light. And he's saying that the, the real light is Jesus Christ. But John the Baptist serves as an example for us, not just in his own person, but it's a reminder to us that all of us have things or people that have helped us, that give us our, our sense of stability, our identity, or guide us as we are trying to navigate our way through this life and through this world. And so in a sense that they are lights to us, and we become very, very comfortable with them. But what John is saying about John the Baptist and all of those other lights, though they may emit light, they are not the true light. They are not the genuine light. They are essentially like our night lights in our, our bedrooms. They are able to help us to navigate, but compared to the radiance of the sun, of the true light that is self-sufficient, self-sustaining, and doesn't need any artificial power and isn't going to burn out in, in our lifetimes, they are almost as nothing. So John is saying that the true light has come into this world and in the person of Jesus Christ, shining, radiating in the darkness. But then it's interesting, he touches on something in these verses that is also true, that I find really somewhat amusing, even though it's sad. Because he says in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so here's the light that comes into the darkness and the people see that light, and their response is to not recognize him who he, and what he's doing, and actually preferring whatever it was that was bringing them light in the darkness prior to the arrival of Christ. Whenever I read that, I'm reminded of an instance that I remember reading years ago. Jack Benny was a star in the early days of radio and television. He was known in part for his distinct voice and, and his pattern of speech. In fact, it was so distinct that there were contests all over that would have Jack Benny impressions. Well, apparently one day there was a radio station that was holding one of those contests, and Jack Benny happened to have tuned into the radio station hearing that there was going to be one. Now, part of the persona of Jack Benny was also that he was a chief. And there was a prize of about $500. And so Jack Benny thought it would be fun to enter into the contest of the Jack Benny impersonation. And so he called the radio station among all of the other listeners, and he came in third. <laughs> I read recently that Dolly Parton came runner-up in a Dolly Parton look-alike contest. And to make matters worse, she came in second to a guy who was in drag. And these just serve to tell us that we get these ideas in our head of what we like and we have our own impressions of what is right and what way things ought to be and we prefer them to reality. And John is saying, see, in that darkness, God, because of his love, sent his son. Jesus came as the light of the world to shine in that darkness so that we would know God and that we would know ourselves. And yet, the sad thing is that we see in our text in verse 5, going back to our central outline, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. See, there's a response to that. Now, the word overcome it, depending on the translation that you're reading from, some of your translations will say overcome, the ESV, some of the newer translations, NIV, 
But if you have one that is one of the older, whether it's a King James or the authorized version, it will probably say, and the darkness has not understood it. That confuses people sometimes. Now the connection that we see is, is clearly it's the response of the light uh, of the of the of the uh, of, of the world to the light that has come into this world. But there seem to be two totally different responses, two totally different directions, and, and some people read that and say, Well, how do we know what God wants us to understand? These seem somewhat unrelated. So I'm gonna Take a side note here for a second and, and then come back to help us to, to understand that I believe that what John has in view here for us to know is both overcome and understand. We see there's a pattern where he has double meaning in his words uh, already in this text, but there are also some practical understandings that we can get to help us in our own Bible study. And I'm going to use an illustration from everyday life that is also a legitimate word to be using translating here that shows us that it, it, it literally could be both the issue of overcome the light has not or the darkness has not overcome or the darkness has not understood when you're faced in Bible readings with different translations that have different words sometimes it can feel confusing and we do want to know which one is the more accurate Bible scholars use a, a phrase that's called dynamic equivalence that helps us to understand that the different words actually are not in contrast to one another but often serve one another. When you're translating from the original language, whether the Hebrew or, or the Greek, particularly the Greek, uh, which is a much more precise language, sometimes we don't have any particular word in our language that conveys all of the meaning and the depth of the word in the original Greek. And so Bible translators will look at that and they'll try to understand based on context and what's the best way to communicate the essence of the message that the original writer wanted us to understand. But they are limited because they have to use a word, but the word itself is not sufficient. So when you have different translations, what is helpful is to look at each of the words, and not just the fact that they're different, but where do these words intersect? In other words, where do they connect? And at the point of intersection, you actually have a better understanding of the original word. These words are more descriptive and help you understand more fully of what the writer was trying to convey than any one word alone is able to do. Again, that's known as the it's dynamic equivalence. They, 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 they support one another. We have that in play here this morning. When it's, well, backing up, it's beneficial sometimes to study the Bible in different translations because you get a fuller or a more precise understanding when you're able to put the words together and find out where they intersect. Now, the problem with our text before us today is it doesn't seem like there's any point of intersection, is there? I mean, there's overcome and then there's understand. One has to do with our intellect, one has to do with active and seems almost hostile. One is passive, one is seems hostile, and they, they don't seem to have a particular connection. And nevertheless, I would agree with the scholars who say that John has both in view here. And the reason that I can say this is we have words in our own language that we use very freely that convey both meanings at the same time. 
one of those words is grasp. We use it freely and we understand by its context what we have in mind with that. And actually, the word grasp would be an appropriate word to translate the Greek here so that it could say, and the darkness didn't grasp the light. We can use the word grasp in this sense. If I see somebody who is going to step into danger, one of my children when they were young, I might grasp their arm in order to secure and to take hold of them to keep them from moving on. So there's a physical activity that can occur with the word grasp. I can do that. Other people more hostile, you might see two people getting into a heated argument and one of them might grasp the other person and we know that that is a prelude to an assault. At the same time, if Dalton, as he often does when I take my car to him, is trying to explain to me what's wrong with my car, here's how those conversations go. Dalton, in all of his knowledge and wisdom, he tells me these things that I, I'm sure are seeming very simple to him, and I'm saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have no idea what he's talking about, because I can't grasp it. What he understands is not within my ability to understand. It just is foreign to me. And when I say that, you will know that what I mean is, I, I don't understand it. Intellectually, I can't grasp that. And, and that's an illustration of kind of the word that we have here that, that John is writing for us when he's saying, and the, and the darkness doesn't, whether it's overcome or understand. And both are, have practical implications, and I think both are in view here because they are related. Because some of the people get frustrated because they don't understand. They see the light has come, Jesus has come, and is revealing all there is to God, but he is so different than what was expected that it's just difficult to embrace. And sometimes the light, when it shines, actually seems somewhat painful, doesn't it? The middle of the night, you go into the bathroom and you flick on the switch and the light, brand new bulbs are shining. You want the light to be dimmed because it's too bright. It's an uncomfortable feeling that the light brings. And the same is true for Jesus. He comes into our lives and when he is revealed, when we are beginning to see, even if we're not understanding, we are uncomfortable because we are not able to understand. We have our own ideas and impressions. We like the way things are. And when Jesus comes in and sheds light and opens our eyes, sometimes what he reveals is different than what we want to believe. Let me give an illustration from my own life. When I was in high school, I played a lot of racquetball. In fact, I had the opportunity in my senior year, I was invited to play in the Tennessee State Racquetball Championships. It was lowest level, they had different tiers, and I was invited to play. And I got beat in straight sets, both in the first round and in the consolation round. So the only good thing about that was, it, at least it was held in Nashville, and was three miles from my house. I didn't have to travel to be embarrassed. I was able to go home, take lick my wounds, and eat the buffet they had for all the players. Uh, anyway, uh, that, was, that was the extent of my weekend. And I didn't play a whole lot in college, and I didn't play a whole lot in the years until after seminary. In the first church I was serving, I picked it back up and started playing again. A number of the younger men in the church uh, had played, and Covenant College students had played, and so I would play with them. And I was surprised because the stroke came back pretty easily, and I was beating all these guys who were 15 years, 10 to 15 years younger than I was. So one day I was waiting for one of the guys in our church who was late as usual, 
and we played fairly often. He was a, a very good athlete, but he was late. And there was another guy who came in and said, uh, hey, would you want to hit? So just kind of volleying. So he and I were hitting the racquetball around. He said, would well, you want to play a game? And so I said, sure. And he whipped me. And he is 72 years old. <laughs> I was 34. See, a light bulb came on. I was enlightened. I'm not very good at this. Though I thought I was. And so, you know, that's just kind of, a, kind of an amusing illustration, but all of us have certain ideas, whether it's about ourselves or about other things. And then when Jesus comes and brings light, we have to face reality, and he exposes what's hidden in the darkness. And just as some people look better in the dark than they do in the light, so do most of us feel better about ourselves when we are concealed in the darkness. Jesus Christ comes. We don't understand, and sometimes that makes it difficult. And we're faced at those points. How will we respond to this new knowledge? Discomfort can lead to brokenness, or in my case, retirement. No, I still played some. Or it can lead to anger. And so there is a lack of understanding, but even in the lack of understanding, we either come to realize I don't understand and I need to submit myself to what is real according to this light, or we rebel against it. And John has in view, when he uses the word overcome, the words translated overcome, those people whose response to the coming of Jesus Christ was to kill him. The people who wanted him crucified. The people who wanted him dead rather than to live with the reality of who they are. See, they would rather kill than to have their self-righteousness exposed to being empty. They would rather kill than to have to change their theological concepts. They would rather be hostile to that. And so John uses language here that says this is the response of many people to the light that has come into the world, is they will attack it. They want the light extinguished. And yet the promise of the gospel is this that we see in John's word. The light came into the darkness, but the darkness has not and will not ever overcome the light of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful promise that we need to understand that the light is the light and the light is eternal light and the light is always there and we are in relationship to it. And while that is a beautiful promise that the light will never be overcome, there's even a greater promise in this particular text. Because John tells us this, for whoever receives this light will have the right to become children of God. See, when the light comes and we receive that light, we become somewhat like Helen Keller who had an entire new world. We remain physically the same. Nevertheless, an entire new world is opened up to us. We now become children of God. We live in a world that is run and owned by our Father. But something that struck me that I hadn't even noticed until 5.30 this morning, and no, I was not awake at 5.30 this morning. I was awakened with this thought, so I had to kind of work through this. Something that's significant in that passage that just didn't even hit me, except for subconsciously this morning. So when we see, talk about the idea of receiving, there is more there than we may put into it. Because it sounds entirely passive, right? See, if you just receive, then you have the right to the children of God. And that's a little bit deceiving. The weight of the verb is more than just passive. There is also an activity. Now, I want to try to say this in a way that doesn't distort both what John is saying and all of Orthodox Christianity, which is always a problem when you come up with illustrations at 5.30 in the morning that you're going to speak. But it just kind of came to my mind. So receive, is that 
receive the prize. Is that what Michael Phelps did or Usain Bolt same, uh, the other, when they were in the Olympics? They just kind of went down to Rio. Somebody said, hey, I got something for you. And they say, oh, okay. And they just, you know, total passivity. And we would say, of course not. The reality is they received a reward. They actually had seized their reward in a sense. Both of them, using the gifts that God had given to them, empowered, seized the races that they were in, and therefore they received the reward. But even when they received the reward, there was some activity. Now, on their part with an Olympic medal, it's usually kind of bowing over so the person can put it on us. For you and I to receive, there is an action that takes place. It's not just something passive that happens to us, but we also reach out. We receive is, there's a little bit of action, even though the primary action is on the part of the giver. And what John is saying to us is that there is a, an action in part of our believing. In fact, the believing is the action. It is, an, it is an active verb. It's not just one of those things where you just say, ah, I have no argument against it, so therefore I believe. John has in mind here that we are reaching out and grasping that which is given to us, that which we cannot earn, that we can't deserve. That's where the illustration breaks down for the Olympics because they earned it. We have not. But to receive also means to reach out. And the action of believing, which we're also told in Scripture, is a gift that comes to us. It's cultivated. The believing is active. And so the implication here, I think, is also we're believing, we're feeding our faith, we are constantly being reminded of who Christ is, what he's done for us. And as we are doing that, that's part of what believing really means. The, the benefit, the consequence is we receive the right to be children of God.